We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskimen, and I'm here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Dr. Chris Streamer. Dr. Streamer is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology here at McEwen, as well as a Board of Governors Research Chair. His primary research interests are the cognitive neuroscience of attention, perception, and visuomotor control. On today's episode, Chris will be updating us on his research from last season's episode and talking a bit about his new appointment. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be back. Yes, it's nice to have you back. I don't know if we've had a repeat uh, guest yet, so so you're the first. Congrats. At least I'm the first to do something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so Chris, since you were last here, it's been it's been a whole season. So so what's been going on with with your research? What's changed, and do you have new stuff you've been working on? I guess since last episode. Uh, always working on new stuff, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a busy blur. I think is probably the easiest way of describing it. I think a lot of faculty probably feel the same way over the last couple of years. Um, so since last year, I'm trying to remember. So last episode, I think I, if I'm going to pick up where I left off pretending as like chapter two or something like that. Um, <laughs> if you remember from the last chapter, I was talking about, uh, I, I, I had applied for a grant. I was waiting to hear back. My fingers were crossed. And uh, I heard back and I, and I got it. So that was great. So I uh, um, was lucky enough to receive a, a, an NSERC discovery grant for the next five years, which is going to help fund my research program and, and uh, help fund students in my lab to continue, uh, continue their research, which is fantastic. Um, I have been studying in the last few years uh, a particular area of the brain called the cerebellum. Uh, it's kind of you know in, in the back of your head at the base of your brain, wrapped around the brainstem. Um, it's, it's an area of the brain that's involved in a whole variety of different functions. We know it's involved in movement. Um, some research over the past sort of 20 or 30 years has started to suggest it's involved in other aspects of cognition, things like attention and working memory and language and things like that. Um, so a lot of research in my lab is focused on the role of the cerebellum and things like attention and how we pay attention to different locations or, or um, how, we, how we perform actions in the world. Uh, so... Um, since the last uh, podcast, we've had some couple new interesting results come out that are one is very close to being published. Fingers crossed that reviewer two is uh, now satisfied. Uh, if you can ever satisfy reviewer number two, I think most people know <laughs> that you can't, but just enough to like, you know get it past the threshold. Uh, so we we have um, one paper that's coming out hopefully very soon um, that's looking at the effects of, of damage in the cerebellum uh, on, on attention. And the way that we did this was actually, so this was during COVID where we couldn't really do any in-person testing. So it was all either data mining or online stuff. And so I, I had some data I'd previously collected uh, in patients with cerebellar brain damage from uh, some colleagues at University of Waterloo that I was collaborating with in Ontario. Uh, and then I have another colleague at the University of Calgary who uh, is one of the heads of uh, stroke rehabilitation in Calgary at the Foothills Hospital in um, he has a large database of stroke patients uh, that um, are involved in research projects. And so what we did was we did a retrospective analysis on some uh, screening data they use to look for attention impairments in patients when they're admitted into, um, into these research programs. And so these are paper and pencil tests you can do you know, at the bedside where it's screening for a disorder called spatial neglect. So uh, spatial neglect is a disorder that happens when you have typically have damage to the right side of your brain. Um, so typically it's a result of a right hemisphere stroke. 
So stroke is the most common um, common cause of adult neurological disability, and about 50 to 60% of patients who have a right hemisphere stroke in the cerebral cortex will have a disorder called spatial neglect where they essentially ignore the left side of the world. They act like the left side of the world doesn't exist anymore. It's not that they can't see or that they aren't able to move to that side. It's that their attention just can't get captured by anything on the left side anymore. <laughs> so it's a really fascinating disorder that you know I could talk about for, for hours if you wanted to, but uh, I'm going to keep it focused on, on what we're talking about here. <laughs> So, you know, uh, I just told you about this disorder that happens following damage to the right side of the cerebral cortex, um, which is a very, you know, different area of the brain than the cerebellum. Um, what we were interested in is, yeah, we know that the cerebellum is connected to the cerebral cortex. And we know that, or we believe at least, based on our research, that damage to the cerebellum can disrupt attention. So we thought, well, maybe we could go back and take a look at patients who had cerebellar strokes who also did these screening tests, because everyone who comes in does the same screening tests, and see, is there any evidence in these screening tests that are used to assess attention impairments from damage in the cortex that might show up some symptoms in patients with cerebellar damage that no one noticed because they never bothered to look for it. So we managed to get some uh, patients uh, with, who had cerebellar strokes uh, from, from Calgary. We combined it with some data from uh, an older data set from University of Waterloo. All these patients had done the same screening tests right? Because they're pretty popular screening tests that are routinely used. And what we ended up finding, consistent with our previous work, is that uh, in these patients doing these screening tests, damage to the left side of the cerebellum uh, resulted in them actually having more difficulty paying attention to the left side of these tests, these paper and pencil tests. Similar, not, not, not the same magnitude of deficit, but similar uh, to what you'd see in a patient with a right, uh, with a right cerebral lesion. And so what's interesting is that the left side of the cerebellum is actually connected to the right side of the cerebral cortex. So they're actually cross-connected. So our hypothesis is that, well, if you damage the left side of the cerebellum, which, which we believe is involved in attention, it might actually cause some intentional, attentional impairments, deficits in attention, by influencing the activity in the right cerebral cortex. Because if you damage the structure that's connected to the right hemisphere, it can affect the functioning of the right hemisphere of the brain, decreasing mm. its functional uh, ability, and then resulting in this inability or difficulty paying attention to the left side, like we see in neglect patients, but following cerebellar damage. So, uh, so that's one result we're really excited about. Um, that one is, like I said, you know, barring reviewer two's uh, <laughs> incessant uh, comments. Uh, yeah, I think, but what I think an update, though. Yeah, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be accepted very soon. Uh, that was with a, a student, um, independent study student who I worked with uh, in my lab, which was a, a great experience for them. Um, another study um, we've been working on and we're hoping to publish soon, um, hopefully submit towards you know the end of the summer, is a, a study looking at um, how damage to the same structure of the brain, the cerebellum, uh, can actually cause problems uh, with different aspects of movement. So we know that the cerebellum is involved in um, general movement of you know the arms and legs. We know it's involved in helping you keep an upright posture and keeping your balance, for example. Um, one of the students I was working with, a different student in my lab, uh, we were also able to obtain some some data from again a colleague at University of Calgary, who had again this this stroke database where they have patients with lesions to all kinds of different areas of the brain, right? And they do the same tests. So in addition to doing these um, attention screening tests, like I was just talking about. Uh, they have them do a bunch of different motor performance tasks as well. And so one of the tasks they have them do is uh, use this, it's almost like an exoskeleton. Have you ever seen the movie RoboCop before? Oh, yeah. 
So it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not a RoboCop suit, but it's, <laughs> but it's not, not a RoboCop suit, if you know what I'm saying, right? So there's no weapons attached to it, but it's, it's called a Kinarm exoskeleton. It's a really cool looking uh, kind of apparatus that you get people to sit in. And then you have um, their arms basically in this, in this suit that when they reach in for things and try to pick up things, it can monitor how quickly they're moving, um, the trajectory that they're moving, the speed that they're moving, the spatial accuracy, the movement of the elbow and shoulder joints, for example. It has all these different measurements it can take. And so uh, this colleague of mine has you know, stroke patients that come to the ward who are interested in being researched. Pretty much all of them go through this if they want to. Uh, so we were able to get some data from patients with cerebellar lesions who've done these tasks, and we're looking at how the cerebellar lesions affect different aspects of, of their movement. Um, we're particularly looking at this distinction between what we call, um, some people call it feed forward versus feedback control and other terminology some people use is, is kind of programming versus online control. So if you think about um, anytime you make a movement, well, you, you probably don't think about it every time you make a movement, which is why it's so easy for us to do it. Uh, one of the things I talk about, you know, with things like the cerebellum or the parietal lobe that I also, also study is that you know, it's part of the brain that does a lot of things that we don't ever wanna have to think about doing or else we probably screw it up. Um, but you know, if I'm reaching out to pick up my water bottle here in front of me, I'm looking at the object and even before I start moving, my brain is taking in the visual information about what the, what the object is and where it is and it creates a plan for the movement I'm about to make before I start moving. So that's what we call the programming part. So before you start moving, there's a initial program of what it is I'm about to try to do and then uh, online control is once I start moving and my hand is moving through space to pick up the object, I'm using visual feedback. I'm seeing my hand move. I'm feeling my hand move through what we call proprioception. And I use that visual and sensory information to help shape my ongoing movement to correct it. So if I start moving too far to the right, I can kind of kind of curve it back towards the left, for example, to make sure I'm uh, going to reach the object. That's what we call um, a kind of feedback control or online control. Um, Hopefully that makes sense, but it, it's one of those things that every movement you make, you're doing this, you know, thousands of times a day. You never think about it, but every movement you make, your your brain behind the scenes is always taking in the information, creating a motor uh, kind of program for what you're about to do, and then using sensory feedback to shape the movement as you're as you're doing it. It just all happens outside of awareness. You don't realize those are separate things or that those are things you need to worry about until you have a brain injury and you can't do it anymore, and it becomes very difficult. Exactly. Um, so, so we were looking at uh, aspects of this in the, in the cerebellar patients using this kinarm exoskeleton. And what we found um, was that, you know, uh, these cerebellar injuries were impacting both the feed forward component and the feedback component, both the programming and the online control. Their movements were disrupted. So slower movements overall um, and, and, you know, uh, quite, quite a bit different than, than, than a healthy adult without an injury. So impacting both aspects of the movement. Um, what was also really interesting that we observed, uh, and this has been observed in other cerebellar patient studies before, is that um, these patients often recover quite quickly. So their recovery happens more quickly than it tends to do in, in, in patients with areas uh, damage to other areas of their brain. So, for example, if you had a damage to the cerebral cortex in, in uh, different regions, um, you could still have movement impairments, but it might be much slower to recover. It might never really fully recover. In a patient with a cerebellar injury, um, they don't necessarily all fully recover, but the speed at which they're able to get back to closer to normal performance seems to be faster than what we see in a patient with a lesion in the cerebral cortex. And so this has been something that's been termed uh, the cerebellar reserve. They call it the special property that the cerebellum has that um, it tends to be able to compensate or recover from injury uh, more quickly than other brain areas. And it's um, 
there's still you know theories out there as to why that might be the case. They're not entirely sure yet, but we we observe some evidence of this as well, where uh, you know between sort of 12 to 24 weeks post-stroke, these patients were many of them uh, were were doing quite a bit better at that at that time frame than than you would expect from lesions in other parts of the brain, for example. So um, so yeah, so that's some of the stuff uh, I've been up to that at least is kind of you know on, on the on the cusp of either being published or sort of getting getting ready to kind of submit it. Um, Lots of other stuff going on too. Uh, so I have right now, you know, f- five students, five different research students in my lab, each doing a different research project. And I'm collaborating with someone in computer science with a couple of students as well, doing some programming work that's going to help out with some of the work that we're doing. So um, never a dull moment. Yeah, no kidding. It sounds like you've been up to a lot <laughs> then. Yes, yeah, <laughs> in yeah, short. Up, up to, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Summarize, um, yes, I've been doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's so exciting to hear though that you ended up getting your grant. Yes. And that you went ahead with this research and that you you're so close to hopefully being published now. With yeah. This. So a couple, couple more publications coming out, hopefully uh, in the near future. And then it just sort of keeps going. It's this ongoing process. It's never sort of get these two things finished and then I'm done. It's always sort of what's next. What's the next follow up thing I want to do. Um, it's, it's always kind of an ongoing process when you learn some, when you learn something new, um, it's interesting, but in a lot of cases, it raises more questions about what you don't know yet and what the next follow-up to that is, right? It's almost like an addiction. You just keep going like, well, okay, yeah. I, I figured that out. Now I want to know about this. It's, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a reward cycle, I guess, right? It depends on, you know, it's, it's funny. People ask you about it and it's like, well, how do you know? I can't imagine, you know, going to school forever or, or you know, doing this forever. And it's like, well, if, if you actually enjoy it, it's actually really, really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but if you don't, it's probably terrible. Yeah, true. It's actually. like a lot of things, right? So, you know, if, if, if something you really enjoy and you're passionate about it, it doesn't, it shouldn't say it doesn't seem like work, but it seems less onerous than something that you don't enjoy. Right. Well, isn't yeah. that the old saying is if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life or something like that. So, uh, I've def- I've heard that before. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I mean, again, you I, don't look convinced. No, I mean, I shouldn't say, yeah, it's, 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 it's all, it's always work, but at, at the same time, I think, you know, if you, if you enjoy it and you get satisfaction out of it, then I Absolutely. think the, the, the reward that's built into, to doing it just, it's, it's, it's self-motivating, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I want to actually go back to what you were saying about your students. So, sure. so you said you had five students under you right now Yeah. that are it's five separate studies. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's a lot. That's yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, it's, it's, you know, it's different for different people, right? So um, it depends on the lab and depends on, so there's lots of people in my department and other departments all around the university who have multiple students doing research or doing scholarly activity with them all the time that we don't always know about, but uh, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm not unique in this respect. I, 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 know I take on, I, anywhere between three to five students at a, at a time, that's, that's my magic number. I've kind of figured out that you sort of, you know, you figure out through trial and error that, you know, I need to have enough that I feel like I'm doing something that I wanted, like them getting enough done, but not so many that I feel like I can't supervise them effectively. And so I've, I've been at the other end of that too, where I have too many and it's like, okay, I, I need to dial this back. This is, this is becoming a mental health concern on my, on my part. <laughs> for everyone involved. Yeah. For everyone involved. <laughs> well, and, and yeah. And, and I mean, truthfully, right. It's half joking, half serious is that, you know, for me, um, I had the good fortune of, you know, going through my undergrad and my master's and PhD and postdoc of having 
um, some really, really good mentors and really good supervisors. And I try to emulate what I feel are the, you know, the best aspects of that and making sure that, you know, if I'm going to take on a student and expect them to do, you know, to work hard and do good work for me, I want to make sure that I'm able to reciprocate and, and, and help them get where they want to go. Right. So if, if I feel like I don't have enough time to really dedicate to, you know, giving them the attention that they need to help them thrive and make sure the research is turning out well, not just for me, but also for them, then it's, it's sort of that, uh, you know, you have to find that, that, that middle ground that works for you. So for me, three to five is kind of the magic number at any given time. But yeah, e each one of them is usually doing a, a separate research study. They're not all working on the same. I mean, they might be working on related themes of the same idea, mm -hmm. yeah, that's but what they're, I not was all, gonna... they're not all the same study that they're just sharing time with. It's each, each of them is, is different. Right? Doing their own thing. And so is it just like an independent research student that's like they don't have a group or anything that they're working with either? Like it is just five separate students doing five separate studies? Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's five separate students doing five separate studies, let's say, but, but you know, each one of them, they're a group in the sense that they get to be very cohesive because they get to right. know each other working in the same lab environment, mm -hmm. working on the same things. Some of them will be doing similar studies so they can share resources or, or collaborate on things. So there's definitely a very collaborative, you know, collegial environment in, in the lab, but, um, but, but each one of them is working on their own unique project that is going to have its own, you know, write up in its own um, kind of trajectory in terms of where that, where that study is going or the aims of that particular study. Yeah. So just, just following up on that, you, you're, you're giving um, these students sort of an opportunity as undergraduate researchers. Mm -hmm. um, Cause this is not typical, I would say of, of an undergraduate um, to, to have so many undergraduate research students. Right. And I mean, we have them, we have a huge research um, focus now in our in our school in terms of undergraduate research and encouraging it, but um, is because you you were a graduate researcher. So what are some differences that you see between the opportunities that they're getting because you are familiar with graduate research versus undergraduate research? Are they are they like like yeah? Just talk on that a little bit. Yeah. So I think I mean I it's it's I, I had lots of opportunities for research actually as an undergrad. So. Um, I, I think that the difference is that, you know, with McEwen in our undergraduate focus, um, we, we don't have graduate students or, and, and not many postdocs. Some of us supervise graduate students uh, on the side. So some, some faculty will, you know, co-supervise, let's say, a graduate student at another university with another colleague at U of A or Calgary or somewhere else. So that does happen. Sometimes there's postdoctoral fellows that work here as well. But for the most part, our research training is with undergraduate students. Um, I had, you know, for me, I think, I think it's self-reflection. I, I had a really fantastic undergraduate experience with research. Mm. Um, and that's kind of, I think what motivates me a lot was, you know, I was, I remember being, so I did my undergraduate degree at, uh, honors in psychology at university of Saskatchewan. And, uh, I remember, you know, going into my undergrad, not knowing anything about research, not knowing about, you know, those opportunities, thinking I was, you know, interest, more interested in clinical psychology. And then I, you know, after taking a number of courses, um, I became less interested in the kind of clinical focus and I started to realize I, I was doing really, really well at these courses in experimental psychology and, and research-based psychology. And I had a, um, who later became my undergraduate honors thesis supervisor, I, I wrote a paper in the cognitive psychology class that they, they really, you know, thought was pretty good. And they said, you know, you should, you should really think about getting involved in research and, you know, come talk to me. And so I did, and I, and I took a, a lab course actually, um, a research lab course with this uh, this professor in my in my third year, and um, 
I loved it. I mean, I, I didn't know that was what I was interested in, but just being exposed to it allowed me to have the opportunity to see what it was like, realize I was interested in it. Um, actually got my, my first publication came out of a, a third year undergraduate wow. research project. So I was fortunate with that too. Right. And I realized I, I'm interested in this. I'm, I think I might be good at it. <laughs> um, you know, this is great. And so I ended up doing uh, a bunch of different lab courses in my undergrad, more than I needed to do to graduate just because I wanted the experience. Um, and that was, you know, what, what kind of set me on that path was it was tr transformative for me in terms of exposing me to, to that side of, in my case, psychology, but just, but just research that I hadn't considered before and just having the chance to do it and see what it was like and see that for me, it was really interesting and motivating. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to create those same opportunities for students here. Um, there's, there's lots of students, at least in my particular department psychology, I'm, I'm sure this is, you know, this case in many, many different departments across the university that there's, for me, at least there's never a shortage of students that are interested in research. Uh, it's sometimes just, um, you know, the number of opportunities you can provide is, is constrained by things like, you know, how much time you have to supervise them and, you know, how much funding there might be to support those research projects, for example. So, um, I, I think it's unique here in the sense that because as faculty members, um, we have direct contact with our undergraduate students. We're working directly with those undergraduate students. If those same students were, let's say, at University of Alberta or, or other, you know, uh, more kind of research-intensive universities, they would still have research opportunities, uh, you know, and, and good ones. But but uh, it's it's usually a bit of a kind of a, what I call the, the pyramid scheme. But it makes it sound terrible. But it's just it's just what it <laughs> I is, right? I really so, like that. <laughs> so the, um, the the way the way it sort of works is that you know at the top it's a hierarchy, right? So at the top, you might have a principal investigator like myself, who's, you know, running a research lab, but then under that person, you might have a postdoctoral fellow or two that have a PhD already and are training to do further research. And then under those, you might have three or four graduate students that are doing a master's or a PhD. And then under that, you might have 10 undergraduate students, two of them are working with, with, which, you know, with, uh, with, you know, each of a different graduate student helping them with their research projects. And so, um, some, and I've been in those labs, and those students get good opportunities too, but I, I do think that there is somewhat of a disconnect between the person at the top, the principal investigator, and, and the undergraduate students doing the research because right. there's time constraints and other just, you know, other multiple layers involved in terms of the work that they have to do. And so, um, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad system. I'm just saying it's a different system. Absolutely. Uh, where, where here I think, you know, because there's undergraduate students and then there's us and there's the middle of the pyramid is missing, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, um, there's, there's challenges to that, but there's benefits to that. The challenge is, is that it, it, I think sometimes limits the number of opportunities we can provide because there's less supervisory structure. Um, if, there, if every one of those students has to come directly to you for input, then it, it puts extra constraints on your time as a, as a faculty member. But I think the, the quality of the supervision and, and the quality of the research experience for those students ends up being really, really high because of the fact that they have that direct contact with the supervisor. Um, yeah. And actually, um, I wanted to ask just, just as you mentioned that, do you notice a difference, um, in your students in the classroom or, or the students at least that are being involved in this undergraduate research? Do you notice a difference in the engagement in the classroom, um, environment? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's hard to know unless you know in your mind already who's engaged in research and who's not in your classroom in terms of student engagement in that respect. But I think that, um, I, I do notice, I think, that, that uh, students who get involved in research, um, 
the ones who self-select to be in those classes a lot of times, if they're somewhat interested in it already, um, they, they do tend to enjoy it quite a bit and get a lot out of it. So I know uh, I've just actually started teaching a new class, uh, this term. That's actually part of it's interesting, right? So my, my board of governors chair uh, was you know giving me um, some extra course release for the last couple of years to help facilitate my research. And it's, it's been great. Um, I've definitely had more time to focus on research, but it's actually um, serendipitously actually helped me focus more on teaching that's specific to research. So research related teaching. So I've actually developed a new lab course um, that I'm teaching for the first time this term where I'm getting students to, you know, work collecting data and analyzing data, learning how to use statistics, learning how to, how to write up research reports um, and, and all these things that not every student gets an opportunity to do. And so the students in this course, uh, I've had some informal conversations with some of them. Uh, you know, they, they seem to really be enjoying it and getting a lot out of it. Um, and, and what I do think, at least in terms of, you know, what the benefits of getting some research experience would be as a student, um, it's not that every student who gets this experience has to be a researcher. It's only going to bene- benefit you if you want to be a researcher. I mean, obviously, if you're interested in a career in research or going into a graduate program that involves research, getting some research experience is, is going to be beneficial and not only in helping you prepare for that program, but also in getting you, um, having you have a better chance of getting admitted into those programs. Right. Because the people who take you on those programs as a supervisor want to know that you're interested in research and the more experience you have, um, the more confident they are that you'll be able to succeed in a program like that. But the skills that these students learn in these classes beyond just being applicable to a graduate program are applicable in many different respects, right? So um, these students who take these, you know, whether it's an honors program or an independent studies uh, course or, or being in a laboratory class where you're getting some hands-on learning in, in a lab environment, um, these students in many cases are learning how to, how to collect data how to analyze data using statistics, how to interpret data, how to come up with conclusions, how to come up with hypotheses. Um, it's helping develop things like scholarly communication skills, so learning how to communicate results in a clear fashion, learning how to present those to results to others, let's say, in terms of a, um, an oral presentation. And, and those kinds of skills are, are useful in a whole variety of different areas beyond just, just uh, academia. Right? Yeah. So, like you've got your, you've got your hard, I think it's called hard skills and soft skills. Right. And so yeah. it's soft skills are a lot of what we don't realize we're about to learn when we enter something like even a, just a, a program in general. Right. Exactly. Um, so the, the, the soft skills, the knowledge that your students have probably gained from even just working with others in a lab and knowing they're not the only person there in the lab, they're not the only person doing research and working as part of a team, working, just being more confident with, you know, how to collect data. How do I, how do, how do I work with this information? How do I try to draw some conclusions from it using, using statistics programs? And, and, um, you know, I'm speaking more specifically from my own style of research, right? Uh, these types of benefits are, you know, wide ranging across all disciplines where students are engaged in scholarly activities. So it's not just, you know, unique to my program of research, but um, it really does benefit them in, in a lot of ways. I, I think, you know, one way to think about it in terms of you know, not just the, the soft skills that they're learning is that um, it's really an opportunity for students, let's say, in, you know, a third year lab course or an honors or an, or an independent study. Um, it's really the ultimate bridge of taking what you've learned in your theory classes and trying to apply it to a real program or, or, or a problem or a real research project, right? And so it's, it's interesting in that, you know, it's not, 
it, people surprise you sometimes uh, in, in good ways and sometimes uh, good ways and sometimes, you know, n- not negative ways, but just ways that, that you weren't expecting. Right. So, so there, I've seen students that are, you know, um, you know, sometimes they're straight A students uh, and, and they think they're going to go on to a career in research and they get into a lab and they're like, you know, I, they either, you know, maybe they don't really enjoy it or they don't do as well as they thought they would, or they don't, they don't enjoy the experience. And that's totally fine. Right. I mean, what, what I tell students is sometimes you sometimes you find out what you want to do by finding out what you don't want to do, right? Oh, and, exactly. And, and so, you know, getting that experience um, can sometimes show you, you know, I really thought I wanted to do a master's or a PhD, but I'm, I'm not really enjoying this research experience. So maybe I don't want to do that. That's that's not really negative. That's to me, that's helping them figure out their path. But the skills they learn are still going to be beneficial, right? Um, but I've also seen many more cases of the opposite circumstance where students come into those programs and they're not clear about, um, you know, I'm not really sure if research is for me or I don't really know what research is and they get that experience and then suddenly a light bulb kind of goes off and they get really interested and really motivated and they see this whole new kind of uh, opportunity that they've never even knew existed before. Um, I've seen students sometimes that are, uh, you know, that are academically or good students, but not necessarily the strongest students, right? So you see students who, might be, you know, academically doing well, but not necessarily outstanding in terms of GPA. But then they get into a, a class like a lab course or a research project, and suddenly they just flourish and they're they just excel. Right? Yeah, they're the, they're in their zone. Yeah, yeah. they they you know, and and so maybe it was just that they needed a, a different way of, of of demonstrating their knowledge, right? Of of an applied learning circumstance where now they can take what they're learning in class and applying it, like I said, to a, to a real uh, research project or a problem. And suddenly, um, again, things just totally change for them. I've seen that happen multiple times as well. I've had students, you know, for, in, from my own experience, and again, this isn't unique to me. This happens, I'm, I'm guessing, all over the university, but students who come into a, a course or, or a project like that and say that, you know, I didn't really think I was interested in research, but, you know, now that I've had this experience, I this, this single-handedly made me want to pursue a graduate degree or made me want to pursue this whole new avenue that I've never thought about before. Yeah. So I, I think the more we can provide those opportunities to students, um, the, the better off the students will be. And it, like I said, not every student's going to want to go to graduate school, but I think having the opportunity to see what it's like, at the very least, you get a chance to see what it's like, see if it's for you, but the soft skills you get on the way are also going to be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have one more question for you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, so I want to know now that you've had, uh, because of your your uh, your your board of governors research chair, mm-hmm. um, that time that you that you had, what what are you like? What's next for you? What, where, where are we, where are you planning on going with, with the time that you've, the time that you've spent now that you've had this time to do this research and you're going to be hopefully getting published in a few more places now? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does the future look like to you? Uh, I, I, the future to me looks exactly the same as the past. <laughs> I just, I mean, and that's, you know, in that, a good way, in a good way. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've, I didn't, I didn't, I, I've always been doing research. That was basically how I, you know, that was what I was trained to do during my graduate studies and my postdoctoral fellowship. And I've always enjoyed doing it. So it's, I tell students, you know, it's, it's, uh, people talk about it, about, you know, is it, is it, you know, it's, if it's, if it's research or is it teaching? I said, well, when I'm, it's actually a form of teaching, I would say that when I'm teaching students how to do research, it's, it's really, you know, the ultimate sort of hands-on teaching. And it's one of my favorite parts of my job. So it's, I'm, I'm not gonna, I, I was doing it uh, you know, for 
nine or 10 years, I guess, at McEwen before I got the BOG chair, and I'm, I'm likely to be doing it until I retire here at McEwen as well. Um, what the BOG chair was unique for in me was uh, giving me some more time to focus on really getting my lab restarted after this massive COVID disruption. So as, as a researcher who does um, mostly in-person research, collecting data with, with human participants, um, having a lab shut down basically for you know a better part of two years, not being able to collect any new data, that's a, that's a big gap, right? Well, and especially considering the, the area of research was healthcare which Healthcare was very and, inaccessible over COVID. Yes. And I know that, you know, one of my, one of my colleagues who does patient research, uh, um, he was even saying, you know, they had, I think their research started up for like two weeks at one point where they were given the green light, we can start recruiting patients again from the stroke ward. And he's like, and then there was another COVID outbreak in our ward and we had to shut down again. So, so it's been a massive disruption for not just me, but, but many, many others. And so having some time to really jumpstart research again, in-person research again, and getting my lab, you know, going with, with having students again, getting, getting this next grant for the next five years, having some opportunities to, to work on publishing some of the work from before I didn't have time to, to, to write up because of, again, the time it takes to, to supervise students and teach and everything. So it, it really has been a great catalyst and I think it's going to carry me well, well forward into the future. Um, but yeah, so this isn't the, I wouldn't say it's a kind of a bookmark for the starter end of anything. Um, I may not be able to take on as many students as I've taken on uh, after the BOG chair ends just because of, you know, uh, having to return to, to teaching a few more courses uh, a year. But uh, it's, it's, it's going to keep going. It's, it's, as I tell students, it's, you know, one of my favorite parts of my job. So uh, in that sense, it's, it's really quite self-motivating. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, happy to hear that. Um... Well, I don't have any other questions for you, Chris, but is there anything before we end, before we wrap up that you'd like to add? I don't think so. <laughs> um, I mean, care, careful what you ask me, uh, as, as you've probably figured out, you know, if uh, I, I, I can talk forever if I want to, about, about things I'm interested in. So um, I, I just, you know, I think that, you know, we're at a time in McEwen where we're experiencing a lot of growth in student enrollment and we have a lot of, ideas for the future in terms of massively increasing our enrollment in the future with a new business school coming in. That's really exciting. Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the exciting parts about that business school going up is from what I've heard with the word on the street, <laughs> if, I can, if I can say it that way, is that uh, you know, one, of the, one of the benefits of that school of business building going up is that the, the current space that business is occupying, largely in building five, will be open, which will create more space for other people, right? Which hopefully will be repurposed for, for additional research lab spaces, not only in, um, you know, in, in my department perhaps, but, but other departments would benefit from it as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna keep increasing student enrollment, we wanna keep being able to provide the kinds of student research opportunities we have been providing and keep that going at the rate we've been doing, um, I just I just hope that uh, there's room in the future for for that uh, additional support for for student research opportunities through through infrastructure and through you know uh, time for for professors to to engage in research with students to make sure they have the time they need to supervise those students uh, and and um, get the work done because at the at the end of the day it's a it's a cycle that 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 feeds off itself the more people there are engaging in, in students in research, the more benefits those students are going to get, the more research that gets done, the more scholarly work gets put out there, the more scholarly work that gets put out there, the more recognition McEwen gets, the maybe the more grant money we get from the government, from tri-councils, and then that just feeds into more resources to do more of the same. So I think if, you know, uh, 
I, I hope the momentum carries forward, not just in student enrollment, but also keeping up the uh, opportunities we, we can provide the students for research opportunities, because I think it benefits them tremendously. Oh, absolutely. It does. Yeah. And I must say that, um, have you ever considered a job in, uh, in strategic planning? Because <laughs> that whole thing came out so smooth. I was like surprised. I was like, oh, wow, okay. this guy's, um, this guy's great. He's got a whole plan on how, how the cycle goes. Yeah, no, I, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, I don't know. I've never thought of a job as strategic planning. I've had people informally ask me, would you ever think about, you know, being, you know, a, a, a dean or a chair in this area? I, 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 I'm, I don't naturally consider myself one of those people. Um, and I don't know just cause I don't have a lot of experience doing it. I, I think I have, you know, for research, at least I guess the right intentions for, for wanting to pursue a position like that. But, um, I, I really don't know. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my ultimate, I mean, the, the, the funny thing about it is that my, my worry, and this is kind of comes back to the whole point of what I've been saying is that my, my biggest worry in taking on a, a role like that, if I would at some point, um, is more about, am I going to still have time to do research? Yeah. Am I, or right? am I going to lose my spark? Yeah. Am I going to lose my spark for research? Am I, you know, if I take on this really large administrative role, um, you know, am I going to still have time to supervise the students I want to supervise? Am I still going to have time to do the research I want to do? And again, because it's one of my favorite parts of my job and it's <laughs> for me so self-motivating, I would really hate to lose that. So it, it's hard to find that balance. Um, and so, you know, I'd have to think about some creative ways about trying to <laughs> make sure I can balance those two things. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing that most, I think people who are passionate about research really worry about is like, how is this going to impact how, if I, if I take on this additional responsibility, how is it going to impact, you know, my research program? How is yeah, it going to my impact? research though? Yeah. Yeah. And again, <laughs> it's not that we only care about that. It's, 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 you know, people think that sometimes researchers only care about research and don't care about teaching. I think the, I think that's the furthest thing from the truth for most of us. We're here because we're passionate about teaching and the research we're doing mm -hmm. in many cases is really just applied teaching that we're doing with a lot of our students. And so, um, you know, the, the more we enjoy doing that, the more opportunities we can provide the students and it benefits us and it benefits them. Um, and I, I just, I'd hate to lose that because that's, you know, if you, if you enjoy, like you said, to bring it full circle, someone told me, I don't know how long ago, maybe a few minutes ago, that if, if you, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Oh, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of losing what I love to do. Must've been a brilliant person who gonna, told you that. Cause then, it, cause then it's going to be work. <laughs> I don't want to work. I want to enjoy Absolutely. what I do. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're in the right place then, Chris. Uh, with that, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for being on uh, the podcast today. And Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, if you think this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications here at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskiman and Renette Schaubert. Music is by Dylan Cave. Sound design and editing are by Renette Schaubert, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Megan Miskiman. Our executive producer is Ray Burry. 